This is, I think, one of Fortune's formulas for sure, which is assemble the best group of people around you that's possible. That's, that's, I, that is Fortune's formula, you know? And I, you could be starting a nonprofit, a for-profit, a startup, a, you know, a student group or whatever, but just you have to assemble incredible people around you that are gonna compliment you and just, that, that is, I mean, people are the fundamental units of what we're trying to do in this industry. I think it's easy to forget that. It's easy to lose sight of that. But that's when I've seen success compound over time, when I've seen success accumulate over time, it starts with that. Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay Ventures. Today, we have Peter Boyce on the show. He's a partner at General Catalyst, a very large venture capital fund based in the States. He's also the founder of Rough Draft Ventures, a program that helps student entrepreneurs. Peter's extremely well accomplished and has set himself apart from many of the VCs in the market. Today, he's going to explain how General Catalyst operates and what makes them unique, including the fact that they've won an Academy Award. He articulates how to improve entrepreneurship at colleges, and overall, I think this is a fun one. I made Peter blush at least two or three times during the show. I hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Bowery Legal. Bowery Legal provides a complete range of legal services to high-growth companies. They do everything from formation, employment, partnership agreements, stock grants, corporate matters, and venture capital and debt financings. If you're interested in learning more, visit BoweryLegal.com. Peter, thanks for being on the show. Mark, thanks so much for having me. All right, we have a lot to cover today. But before we get into General Catalyst, venture capital, and everything else, I want to hear a little bit about your story. Could we start off with where you're from? Totally. I grew up in New York. In the I, city? Yeah. You know, up in Washington Heights. City um, kid. Yeah, you know it. Um, and, uh, you know, I've always been a little bit of like a kind of a computer geek. So, you know, that's uh, been, been really nice to kind of carry with me, you know, through all these years. So grew up here. You know, I was like the physics, you know, summer camp kid, you know, I went to Stuyvesant High School um, and, you know, I, lots of stories I can tell you about, you know, fixing computers, the public library and, and all that jazz. How did you get into that. computers in the beginning? What was the beginning of your tech journey? Yeah, you know, honestly, I, the, the, the first thing I remember is, you know, I was lucky to kind of walk down the street once and I basically found someone, you know, someone had left like a, effectively almost like one of these like electronic kind of typewriters, you know what I mean? Like the precursors to proper desktops. That's such so a I, New York story. I mean, honestly, and I took right. it home and I was kind of like, oh my Lord, this is like, I don't even know what to, to do with this, but I like it. You know what I mean? Like I like the digital screen and all that jazz. And then, you know, fast forward a few years later, I just remember getting our first desktop and I just, I remember the process of, you know, kind of putting it together and, and turning it on and using it. I just, it was, it was like, it enveloped me, you know what I mean? Like the rest is history. Like I was just fascinated with downloading new apps and, you know, all that jazz. And it, it, it morphed over time, you know, it's like, it went from, you know, the, you know, LimeWire, you know what I mean? And all that kind of, you know, BitTorrent and all that jazz to then, you know, modding Xboxes and, and then, you know, it kind of all spiraled from there. Were you power user or coder? Power user. Thank you power for asking that. Yeah, I was power user growing up. Ended up studying, you know, computer science at Stuy and a little bit in college. Um, but I've always just been like a, just fascinated by the the tool and the utility, um, you know, of 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 computers and, and and what technology does for us. So I would say definitely a definitely a power user. And I also love the, just like the side project and hobbies, you know what I mean? Of technology. I like, I like building computers. I liked selling them to other people. I liked setting up people's home networks and all that jazz. My first, you know, I'm not even sure I'd call it a business, but you know, I, I basically started like a little computer consulting business in high school. I called it Sty Guy Computer Services. Amazing. And it was literally just like helping people, you know, install new versions of Windows, you know what I mean? And like fixing home networks. So. And did you think about being a founder? Is it sounds like you had a little bit of the entrepreneurial bone. Is that something you never contemplated? You know, it's interesting. I've definitely that that expression founder definitely came to me later in life. You know, it's like that wasn't, you know, in high school it was more like this is this is my 
passion. This is the way, yeah, you know money. what I mean? Yeah, I'm like working at the public library. I'm working at my school library. You know, I'm, I'm having fun with friends, learning a lot, just tinkering. Um, but I think now, you know what I mean? Now it definitely feels a little bit more like that. Like that was the the spirit, you know what I mean? Of just creating things, getting people involved, helping other people. Um, mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of my time in college, you know, founding student groups and helping friends found companies. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, but but again, it was that that nomenclature really emerged later on for, for me. Now, Peter, I've known you for a while, uh, but I've done a little research on you for this conversation. <laughs> Uh, to get to know you a little bit better. Um, oh, no. I think uh, you're a very driven guy, right? I, I think that's part, a big part of your narrative. Uh, and I know that might be a little embarrassing to have someone tell you, but yeah. I think it's probably true. There's a, uh, a line that I, I caught on you, which is you were taking math and physics at Columbia University while you were still in high school. What motivates you? I mean, that's, that's pretty, even if you're capable of doing it, which is impressive enough, Clapping around, commuting, the effort. What's uh, what? What motivates a guy like you uh, to do the things that you do? Yeah, geez, it's a it's a combination of a few things, Mark. Uh, and I'm 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 you know blushing you know a little bit you know what I mean for sure. You are. It's you great. Know, I, don't, I don't I don't I don't blush that much these days. Well, um, hopefully a little bit more that. before we're done. <laughs> um, you know, motivation for me. I mean, look. Part of it is just curiosity and just internal fuel to just discover things and learn more. Like I've just, that's always been a proclivity of mine and I'm, yeah. and I'm, I'm just, I, I follow it. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't reject it. You know what I mean? I don't pretend it's not there. I just follow it, you know? And for some folks that takes them into sports journalism, you know what I mean? But for me, it's just reading physics, math, computers, you know what I mean? Like I just, I just followed it. Um, and I think I got comfortable, you know, with basically just pursuing that, realizing like that's who I was. I was like always the kid that kind of looked up at the night sky and was just kind of like, there's something bigger. There's something really interesting happening here. And you could spend a lot of time, you know, in life trying to discover what those things are. And it would take you really interesting places. So I think that's that's one, you know, that's that's a you know big piece of it for me. Um, the second is circumstance. Right. Like, you know, for, for better or for worse, I kind of came to the conclusion that education and pursuing educational opportunities to the fullest was how you created opportunities, optionality um, and change your life. And it was under my control. Right. I, I, you know, there's some things that we can change. There's some things we can't change. But I could certainly elect to not watch TV after school and schlep up to Columbia to get beat down, you know what I mean? Taking quantum mechanics with Brian Green, you know what I mean? Like I can, I could choose to do that. Right. Um, and so I think that's the second piece and I've always put a huge premium and priority instead of importance around education. And I'm, I'm lucky that, you know, a fair amount of that came from, from my parents and just observing them and observing just, you know, the, the society we're embedded in. So I think that's the second piece. Um, and the third is I find all of this to be really fun. And I know, awesome. uh, you know, and it's like in high school, that's called being a geek or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, but I just, I find this stuff to be so fun. You know what I mean? Like writing equations for me in high school was like the time of my life. And now, you know what I mean? Like just working with founders and thinking about the future technology. I just, I love this stuff. It's super fun and fulfilling. So that's I the positive a lot, feedback loop. A, a lot of people, I think in the innovation economy, find themselves lucky to actually like their job. Oh, it's a blessing. What's the magic at Harvard, right? We've, we've had incredible entrepreneurs come out of there, obviously Zuckerberg and Gates and many, many others. Is there some secret sauce to the way the programming is done and the community is constructed? Or is it since it's just one of the best schools out there that really great people go there and really great people do really great things? Yeah. Is, Har- is Harvard creating this or are they working with people who are predestined yeah. Such a fascinating question. I mean, I would start by saying, you know, I'm incredibly grateful for the experience that I had to study and be at Harvard because I don't think you and I would be chit-chatting today if, if it weren't for that opportunity. So I'm, I mean, hell, you were at Columbia yeah. in high school. I think <laughs> you would have been somewhere fine. Totally true. I would have tried my best. That's for sure. So, but, um, but that gratitude and kind of, you know, recognition is something that I carry with me every day. But here's, here's actually what I would say. I actually think, you know, 
there are so many campuses that have tremendous entrepreneurial excellence. Um, and that's one of the things that I spent a lot of my time dedicated to discovering, connecting and being a part of. So, you know, not I, I, I'm going to trace back to getting to the core of your question, but I want to start by saying, I mean, some of my most favorite entrepreneurial friends and founder narratives came from campuses, you know, far and wide, you know, beyond the the one where I was lucky to study. For what it's worth, I spent my senior year founding Rough Draft to really connect those dots because I really wanted to kind of create a constellation of entrepreneurs across all these campuses because whether it's Columbia or Pomona or UT Austin or UMich or MIT, every campus has these pockets of entrepreneurs. And we, we just, we either tell their stories or don't, and they happen at different volumes. So that's what I would say, right? So so the Facebook story as a result of its order of magnitude and how the ways in which the story has been told, there's a strong association. But, you know, I mean, Max Levchin, University of Illinois, who, who talks about that, you know, not not as much, but it's like, you know, there are so but many he's schools, very successful. Yeah. So many schools can, you know, engineer these really amazing powerhouses in our industry. So, but all that to say, I think it is a little bit of the, the, this kind of like this, like, um, I almost think of it as uh, the admissions office has this opportunity to kind of create like, it's like Dr. Xavier's, you know what I mean? Like, you know, school for the special, right? And, right. and I think there's, there's a little bit of that, you know, kind of magic that happens behind the scenes, you know? Um, but a lot of it is also just, it's serendipity, it's luck. Um, and I think increasingly today though, I think one of the things that I find very exciting is universities are spending more time coming up with ways to engineer more entrepreneurship. And that's something that if we were having this conversation 15 years ago, it'd be dramatically different. Like if you were a founder on a campus, you were doing so by your own volition, right? Like now there's classes, there's communities, there's competitions, there's funding. So overall, our net kind of, you know, output of founders across universities is rising and it's and it's it's not isolated to any one two or five universities so anyway that's something i could talk all day about given the work let's that talk I about it because you that's how i think we actually initially connected right you were doing university entrepreneurship uh mm -hmm. for those who are listening who don't know i started uh the columbia venture community for columbia university and the duke venture community for duke university and i think you were running um some of your entrepreneurial outreach for at university levels and we had connected through that, I think, very early on uh, in your career. I'm a little bit older than you. Um, unfortunately, a lot older than you. I'm getting really old. Uh, but no, we, uh, I think we had connected on that. You have gone far beyond what most people have done, what I have done on the university side, right? So you did the work at Harvard. I noticed you're also involved with some programs at Northwestern, MIT. You've got the Rough Draft Ventures Program, which I'd like you to actually give everyone the headline of what that is. But there's a there's a bigger story around university entrepreneurship where I think you are helping to build a launching pad for people around the country, and I think it's worth hearing, and I want to grab some lessons out of it. So first, do you mind giving a little overview on Rough Draft? Yeah, totally. So this is, you know, I'm in senior year bucket list mode, and I'm like, I've got one, one, one last year to, 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 to make another impact um, where I can on campus. And to the points I was sharing earlier... I was just super excited about this opportunity to find the other pockets of entrepreneurs on, on other campuses. And I, I'd known some of them. Um, and there are other incredible communities that I was a part of that were getting started, like Interact and others that were starting to connect the dots. But I was kind of like, wow, it would be really great if, you know, number one, we could create a community of these founders across all these different universities. Number two, it would be great if we could provide them their first capital, right? Their first resourcing, right? Again, back to the humble beginnings piece that we touched on for a little bit. I mean, Mark, I don't know about you. Not everyone has a, you know, uncle that's going to come out of the woodwork and write the 25K check for them. No, they don't. Right? Not everyone has that. God bless those that do. That's awesome. But if you have a great idea, huge ambition, you know what I mean? And don't want to, you know, bury your, you know, kind of family and credit card debt and, you know, all that jazz. Like you should be able to access resources to take a chance and start a business. And and I can go on and on about how and why the risk curve for entrepreneurship for folks of all different socioeconomic backgrounds needs to change and the ways that we can influence that. But this is the way that was super apparent to me, the first check. Um, and then the third was, well, what would happen if you 
built a set of just mentorship and resources, you know, around this, not as formally structured as a program, like an accelerator where you have a finite period of time and you physically go somewhere, but you know, like just, you know, how do you get access to the playbook for, for company creation? How do you get those lessons uh, that are, you know, I, I'm very glad now they're in great proliferation, but like, if you were, you know, what you think about like, you know, Nate from Airbnb, you know, starting his first companies, you know what I mean? When he was on campus, there wasn't, you know, structured mentorship programs and blog posts, you know what I mean? Illuminating the way. So there's still kind of area to contribute there. So anyway, all that to say, that was the, the, the founding thesis for Rough Draft is, you know, how to deliver on those three things. And so I was very lucky to co-found it with the team at General Catalyst. You know, I spent more of my senior year, I think, hanging out in the office and working with the team at GC closely to get this up and off the ground. And we started in the Boston area. And since then, you know, we've expanded across the country, across schools. And um, how many schools are now in know. the program? And can you give some bullets on what the program does? Yeah, I, you mentioned first so, check, but what's the rest yeah. of it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So yeah, I mean, you know, with Rough Draft, it's, you know, it's funny, I think about, not to be morbid, but I think about, you know, what my, you know, tombstone, you know, might read. And honestly, I just, I'm so lucky and I feel so privileged that I think so much of it would read, you know, about just the, the impact that we've had with Rough Draft, just because I think at the end of the day, some of these companies may or may not have existed at all, like in this version of the universe that we live in, right? Like folks could have taken the job at Palantir or Facebook and Google. Right. Instead, they took a chance, they got together with friends. So anyway, all that to say, so the model is we recruit a team of student venture fellows from across the uh, across our universities where we work. So this year, working in a distributed environment, we've had the most venture fellows we've ever had. You know, because we're that? not meeting up in person. So we now have 50 venture fellows, you know, from okay, across fantastic. the country. So, I mean, from Duke to Stanford, to, I mean, everywhere. It's just, I'm, it's incredible. So we're taking advantage and leaning into, you know, some of the things that you can do in a distributed environment that we couldn't do before. Because before it was nice to get everyone together in a room to chit chat about companies. So, so we have these incredible venture fellows and they are the native connectivity to these entrepreneurs on their campuses. So the founders that they're, you know, they're their classmates. They're their best friends. They're their you know fraternity and sorority sisters and brothers. So anyway, empowering them to find ways to support the founders in their ecosystem. That's what Rough Draft is about. So we write initial checks anywhere between twenty five k and two hundred fifty thousand dollars to kind of help get these founding teams into business. Uh, we connect them with mentors. We connect them with other sources of capital, and we also create this sense of community across the founders. So so one of the things we find is. You know, when you connect all these communities together, all these founders together, there's cross-pollination, there's introductions made, there's co-founders that are found, you know. We've hosted events where, you know, literally, like, two folks find each other, build a company. I'm just kind of like, Amazing. you know, engineering that. So, so yeah, we've backed now, you know, well over 250 companies. Um, and we've been, you know, super lucky to see. I mean, I mean, I, I, I've lost track, you know what I mean, of how many jobs have been created by our portfolio companies. But I mean, you know, it's, it's been, you know, effectively, you know, billions of dollars, you know what I mean, of enterprise value, hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, raised and, um, and, and the per it, we're still getting started, you know, it's still nascent. So, um, yeah. So the, the venture fellows, do they have the control over the investment decision-making or do they bubble it up to you and the team, uh, to evaluate? How does that work? Yeah, you know, this is this is something that's really important. I think, you know, I anchor a lot of the decisions around my, you know, I'm not talking about aging and, and starting to lose one's memory, but I anchor a lot of our program around, you know, the experience that I and other students had on campus, right? And so I think a big part of that is feeling empowered and enabled. Um, and so our venture fellows work, you know, in so many ways to, to lead in the discovery efforts, you know what I mean, that the founders that they're going to work with. Um, and it's really, you know, I, I play a mentorship role. I advise, I help ask questions, you know what I mean? But the real, the ethos and the spirit and the magic and the energy come from empowering and enable our, our venture fellows. Um, and so that's, that's the model. That's what we do. Um, and one of the other things that I would say that's powerful that's emerged is these venture fellows, you know, end up going on to be founders themselves or they, they're partners at venture firms you know what i mean like they just kind of go off and, and do great things in the community um and so we stay connected with them that way too 
So one of the things when I hear this model, I'm thinking, wow, this is a great social service, a great way to empower entrepreneurs, a great way to educate the next generation, a great way to level the playing field. Does it generate returns mm. when you're investing in, by and yeah. large, people who don't have a lot of business experience? Yeah. Has it been a profitable venture? Yeah. So, it's funny. This is where, you know, when folks say, you know, kind of follow your passion, you know, and everything else will, yeah. this is, this is one of those, right? So you could have you know, used that as like a stumbling block to basically prevent a concept from like, th like this ever coming to fruition, right? And sure. you'd be totally justified in doing that. I mean, we have portfolio companies that are, again, you know, it's, it's, it's billions of dollars of enterprise value that's created. I mean, I think that the thing that I would highlight and underscore here, and this is one of the things that drives me, is um, young people and early career entrepreneurs can do so much by leveraging a few of their key advantages, right? So when I think about specialization, it's oftentimes you get unbounded imagination. Right. So Patrick and John Collison had unbounded imagination around how to rewrite, you know, financial infrastructure, of the Internet. They didn't need to work at Visa or Amex or anywhere else to get exposed to that unbounded imagination. In fact, chances are, you know, had they worked at those places, they would have had bounded imagination. Right. So anything they would have mm -hmm. created may have been incremental. Right. And that works in certain environments. You enterprise software. Great. I worked at Oracle for 10 years. This thing needs to exist. So I'm going to go. But sometimes, you know, to have like something that feels like just totally like net new for society, oftentimes just unbounded imagination and creativity is, is what gets it done. And you have that, that as a student, right? You have that. Um, so, and I'm, I'm like obsessed with being around that. Like I get chills when I, I get the sense that someone has that, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's what kind of keeps me going. So that's one. Two is you know, access to these ridiculously, you know, high quality, high integrity recruiting networks, right? Like, I mean, you can literally, you know, assemble a team of your smartest friends and smartest engineers, you know what I mean? And you can do so in ways that are very fluid today, right? Like you can discover those folks. And now it's like with Slack and all these other communities and Discord and others, I mean, there's, there's even more connectivity. So I think the barriers to team building you know what I mean, have kind of come down. And I think there's special advantages to students because they know how to self-organize. They've got mailing lists. They've got all these communities. So that's the second piece. Um, and then I think the third, you know, for what it's worth is there's a, uh, how do I put this? Um, a, a humble and openness to learning and self-improvement. It's something I look for in, in every entrepreneur that I have the privilege of working with and something that I try to uh, embrace and adopt myself. But when you're constantly learning from your professors, from, you know, from founders that you meet on the internet and, and from, you know, YouTube videos and all that jazz, that sponge-like, you know, learning machine dynamic is available to 16-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 100-year-olds. So, so it's available to all of us. And because it's available to, to all of us, the folks that choose to take it on and over-index and over-invest in it can go a tremendous way. And now that there, there's that much content and learning and best practices in entrepreneurship, I mean, I'm waiting, you know what I mean, for the, 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 the billion dollar companies that are going to be created by 16 year olds. It's not, it's not an if, it's a when. So anyway, all of that to say, billions of dollars of enterprise value created with a rough draft portfolio companies. And, and, and these entrepreneurs that start out as students are, I mean, they are world class. I think the, the program is magnificent. And even if the answer to my question that I'm going to ask you again is no, I think it should exist. Oh, let me say that. Sorry. Let me, let me, let me, let me put, hold your feet to the fire. The if you put a dollar yes. in a rough draft ventures, the are you up? Yes. Okay, you're, great. You're, you're, you're in a good spot. Trust me. Great. I love that because that's what I hope, right? You want to believe that, right? Cause you want, you want the math to draw more capital to support that program. Well, that program is, is, is more than just returns. It's training the future. Mark, I think that's right. And this is like, you know, life gives you, you know, only so many win-win-wins. You know what I mean? This, right. is, this is one of them. And we're going to see more universities get involved here. We're going to see more venture funds get involved here. There already is a history of that, right? Like right. I think YC and PEAR and other programs have done a great job backing incredible young people early on. Um, 
you know, I think there are going to be, you know, an order of magnitude more case studies like Patrick and John, you know, and HubSpot and Snap and we can talk about, you know, how and why there should just be so much more of that. Um, I think it's really, really exciting. It's been a big part of our identity and, and, and success in DNA at GC and at other venture firms. And so, um, and I think you're just going to see more universities, you know, in, get in, involved and encouraged and kind of connect the dots on this too. So I'm, this is not going away. Entrepreneurship well, is, is important. A lot of universities are trying to figure out how to invigorate entrepreneurial communities. I feel like this really started after 08. Everyone was trying to find a way to weasel their way into Wall Street, get their students in to get the big paying jobs because it helped all the stats. And then Wall Street collapsed and it's come back. But I think, I think a lot of the universities woke up and realized they needed to diversify while Wall Street was recovering. And I started hearing, oh, nine, entrepreneurship was every campus's new mission. What tips do you have as a guy who's actually made it work? What tips do you have for people who are running programs at universities? What should they be doing to create the type of right environment to support people, to give people a chance? Yeah. You know, it's something I'm, I'm a perpetual student, you know, of, of our industry. And I learned so much by, you know, seeing what's working, what's not working and, and trying experiments. So, you know, any answer that I would share is the product of, you know, seeing, you know, incredible universities and venture firms do things and paying attention to what seems to be working, what's not, and then running my own set of experiments and trying to contribute to this. Um, and I'm excited that, you know, in 10 years, my answer is going to be out of date and executed on, which is great. Uh, so that'll be great. That's, that's going to be important. That'll be um, better for the whole country and the whole world. Yeah. No, it's, you know, uh, finding ways to enable young people to define the future of technology is it, that's, that's, that's our opportunity, you know, and, and it's, it's shown incredible results so far. So, um, but here's what I would say, I, you know, in terms of kind of, you know, structured and engineered ways to enable, you know, kind of greater kind of entrepreneurship that leads to, you know, really big ideas and interesting company creation. I think first and foremost is creating classes and curriculum for air cover for folks to enable the time and have an environment where they can have that air cover to work on their companies and work on their ideas. This mm -hmm. is something, you know, you, you, I mean, I would love to see a time series of, of, of curricula, you know what I mean? Of different computer science uh, and, and other programs. I mean, some universities just, I mean, 20 years ago, there wasn't, you know, an intro to CS class that had more than 10 people in it. Right. Sure. So, so I think that's one. So, and, and, and that's something that universities have control over, like remarkable control over. And of course, there's always, you know, complexity. Are we going to, you know, are, are there going to be finals in this class or not? But, right. I, you know, I would look at symbolic systems at Stanford as just a case study for just, you know, hey, by the way, structure it this way. The team from Instagram is going to get what they need, you know what I mean, to build, you know, a, a platform like. Not Instagram. everyone knows symbolic systems yeah. at Stanford. Can you give the one liner on that? Yeah, sorry. Just as like, um, you know, it's it's, it's interesting because you know, I, I it's been it's been awesome to see the alumni from some of these programs. But symbolic systems is a, is a is a kind of a course of study at Stanford that takes in lots of elements of computer science, product design, but also just it it, it almost ends up being like a, a, a method of design thinking. Um, that has academic rigor and pillars, but is wildly applicable to company creation. And so, so I, I like, you know, that, that work because it, it feels grounded, you know what I mean, in a structured environment. But when you get into kind of application mode, you know what I mean, in some of the classes where you actually get to translate things into startups and projects and products that you build, you know, all of a sudden it goes from class project to company, right? And I think that's, you know, a big set of the companies that I've been lucky to invest in my career so far started out looking like class projects, started out as class projects, and they, you know, ended up translating and graduating to full-blown companies, companies like, you know, Mark 43 and others. So, so that's, and I list that as an example, you know, at MIT, there's the founder's journey. This is a, a class where they invite in practitioners, you know what I mean, to consistently basically inspire entrepreneurs and kind of unfold the path. Um, um, and, you know, one of my colleagues, Haymont, you know, taught that, you know, class for a number of years at MIT. And that's how he, you know, connected up with the, the team at Stripe. And so anyway, I, I, I would start with the, the curriculum because that's that's within the realm of influence. And I like starting there. Mm. 
Second, really quick, I'll, I'll try to please. No, these um, are great. But um, the second is actually, I'll give you one more just 10 second case study on this, which is um, I think there's often a lot of anxiety to have a very unstructured class that doesn't feel like there's a lot of formal paperwork grading, you know, formality, and it's going to turn into like the easy A class or whatever. But there are so many ways to structure the selection process for the class. Um, but if you can give folks that time, you know what I mean, that they're covered. And I'm sure just, a lot of administrators meet that concept with resistance because it's just not the way things are done. But I think to your point, the air cover, a great phrase for it, to give people yeah. time and space to actually tinker. Yeah. That's what it takes. It's super key. You know, it's super key. And I, I've got personal, you know, experience with this. You know, we had, you know, uh, you know, classes, you know, we had an engineering science class at Harvard that was, you know, it's effectively the startup class, you know, um, and I got to work on all different, you know, kind of ideas related to venture capital and startups. So, um, Anyway, that's really important. I think the, the second piece is the really the, the, the on campus, the student groups and like what is the, the connectivity that's taking place between students? Because I think that's where a lot of the energy also comes from. So enabling, supporting these student groups, you know, just I think universities, I mean, and that's one that comes, you know, bottoms up and top down, right? So students can basically identify the need, hey, we should have a, a venture capital group, or hey, we should have a computer science society. And then, you know, administration, university resources can see that and, and help build it up. So, hey, we, we'll call some of the alumni to get come back and be speakers for you. Because that's, you know, one great alumni speaker can make all the difference. You know what I mean? I definitely had my mind short-circuited when we had, you know, Dustin Moskowitz, you know, from, from Facebook and, you know, he was just getting Asana off the ground. I definitely had my mind short circuited by spending time with him and just seeing the examples, you know, the, of his kind of impact in, in technology. So, so I think that's the second piece. So finding the way that student groups and the university can meet and amplify each other. I think that's really important. The third is the, is the summer opportunities. And, and I think you were getting to this point too, which is, a number of universities have had infrastructure that, you know, nicely connected Goldman Sachs, you know what I mean, with Wharton, right? Like it just, there was that, right. that funnel, right? But Office of Career Services is still undergoing a transformation. And I think finding ways to really accelerate and amplify, you know, just the ways to connect the dots to create those experiences is really important because whether that's, you know, an experience in venture or startups, like, or at a larger, you know, established technology company, this can make a world of difference. And so, that's where I've, it's been exciting to see startups like Way Up in our portfolio and Handshake and others have kind of acted as third-party companies. And Major League Hacking, you know, is another good example. They connect engineers from across campuses with great summer opportunities um, and hackathons. And so I think an even stronger embrace, I think, of some of those resources. Um, and that's, that's very much taking place on campuses. I find that very encouraging. And that's something I've loved seeing and contributing to. And we actually created a program, you know, at GC um, a few years ago that was basically connecting great young engineers, you know, with, with some of our portfolio companies and just, you know, the success stories that come from it are just are, are well worth it. Peter, you're an incredibly structured thinker. We've talked a few times. It's more obvious now because we're, I'm putting you on the hot seat here with all these questions. Um, how organized are you as a person overall? And I'm asking this for those who are listening, not watching. Behind Peter is a bookshelf, color-coded by book. You've got white books, red books, yellow books. Has that been an instrumental part of your success, even though it may be something you're not thinking about? Where does organizational skills play into the path forward for success? Yeah, that's a really fun question. Um, I think the top level is it's important, I think, to have a system that works for you, right? And for some folks that's, you know, you should see my desk, you know what I mean? My desk is a different a situation, right? Like, disaster. Uh, Are you like a zero inbox guy? What's your... <laughs> I am. Yeah, yeah yep. you know, I am. But I, I think it's about finding systems that work for you, right? And so for me, you know, I've, I've always been like, an, I've always been a note taker, right? So, you know, mm -hmm. you were... You know, and, and it's been awesome to see the evolution of tools, you know, and, and note taking, you know. What's your favorite um, tool now? What do you use? You know, I use Notion for my, Notion. you know, mm -hmm. written notes. Um, 
or excuse me, my digital notes, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, I use Airtable for indexing relationships. Um, I use Goodreads for indexing books. I use a physical book for jotting you, things in person. I was going to say, do you use paper? I don't use paper. Oh, yes. I love. I've got a stack of notebooks mm. here. Um, wow. Do you ever and go back just, and read them? I see people write all the in these books and it's scribble. There's no way you know what page you wrote something on. You're never going to find that information. It's gone, right? So, boy, uh, two ways to two ways to address this. Um, okay. Number one is and this. This is going to sound weird. So you know, this is like you know, everyone. Can Don't take worry. Go it's for all. it. Yeah. Writing and reading have always had a distinctive, positive feeling to me, and so I would do it if you told me at the end of my notebook, you know, you were going to burn it. I would still take the process of populating because the feeling for me is, is, is positive. And it's always been with me. I like had these like lists from like when I was a kid and all that jazz, I just graph, graph paper, line notebooks, all that jazz. So that's one. But two is I actually think the ability to process information, you know what I mean? Like it's just, it's, it's totally leveled up when you do the, the notes, you know, whether it's written I think written is a little bit more impactful and effective in terms of memory recall. But I mean, I also have a, I have a tough time remembering things and there's nothing that has, you know, higher fidelity and integrity, so to speak, than like, oh my gosh, I actually wrote that down. I don't have to, did I, right. did I say that? Did, did she say that? You know what I mean? I actually indexed it. And so, and I do have a little bit of a routine where I, I do periodically review my notes. I'm, I'm also like a big decision journal person. So like when I make decisions around investments, I love capturing, you know what I mean? Like the moment because it's so easy to rewrite history. You know what I mean? You could, oh, oh, I always knew that industry was going to be, be a big deal and blah, 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 blah. But it's like, well, do you actually have the notes to prove it? So, Have you gone back and been hard on yourself because you knew something and you passed on it or oh. you made a stupid bet? There's, there's so much regret in the venture industry. Right, because if if you're in the game we're in and you're seeing lots of good opportunities, you're not doing them all, and everyone that gets away, you feel horrible about. Do you go back to the notes reinforce that? Do they give you peace of mind? Yeah, it's honestly this is, and I'm sure this is going to change for me over time. And I I love this I love this question and thinking about this because I think what I there have definitely been times where I'm just ridiculously hard on myself and I'm just kind of like geez Louise, you know what I mean? Like should have pushed a little bit harder, further, blah blah blah. blah. Um, I think the thing that I find solace in, so to speak, is distilling the learnings so that hopefully in the future it doesn't happen again. Because we can influence the road ahead of us. And if we take the time to actually distill the learnings from the past and ensure to equip ourselves, you know, this is why I love the, the idea of having like a very robust and organized and structured process around thinking about your anti-portfolio. You know what I mean? And, you know, Charlie Munger's, you know what I mean? Like the, you know, the errors of omission. Like I, I'm, I'm, I fundamentally believe that that's really good sources of learning, not the shame and the guilt and the emotional part, which definitely, you know what I mean? Like, especially earlier on in my career, I was like overwhelmed and flooded with that. You know what I mean? I was like, oh my God, how did I not do that? Um, but just distilling the, the key learnings, and just keep going because hopefully, and this is, you know, my hope, they compound, the lessons compound over time. You know what I mean? And there's going to be an ever abundance of opportunity. You know, it's just like, can you be prepared and try to recognize it the next time you're there? And it's never going to be perfect. So do you have any tactics or skills? And this is something I've struggled with over time for letting go of the regret, getting out of the rut when you fucked up because when you're playing a volume game, you're going to make mistakes, right? We all do them. How do you mm. forgive yourself? How do you let go and focus on the future? What you just said, your method sounds fantastic. I think it's very hard in practice. No, it, I, it, trust me. And I'm, you know, again, I'm an ever student and ever practitioner and ever imperfect. So, you know, I'm like, I'm sure there's a tremendous amount that I can learn from you uh, in your career in this process. Um, the things, and I'm, I'm always trying to absorb and, and, and learn from seeing what's working for others. Um, the things that have worked for me, so this is, this is going to sound a little unusual, but it's like I have to try to get it right on the people. I think that the most profound pain that I've felt is when I got it wrong on the people 
or I didn't follow through on my passion and conviction on the people. So that was a discovery for me, um, you know, for what it's worth. Because I find that markets change, technologies change, you know. You're a team investor. They're exogenous. Yeah, there are all these exogenous factors, you know what I mean, that you just can't control, but you can pick the people. And I think people um, can get better with time and they can compound and improve. And I love that. And I don't have any regrets of being in business with incredible people for which things didn't work out. I have no. So that's one set that I just have erased. You know what I mean? I just, I just, you can, you know, you can predict, you know what I mean? That market was going to evaporate. No harm, no foul. But you can forgive yourself if they were the right people. Yes. For, for the people listening, there was a business school case study I did in my venture capital class, just taught by a few uh, VCs here in New York. And they gave you three companies that were anonymized. And one had an incredible technology or a barrier. One had a great market. One had a great team. And a lot of detail in each one. And you're supposed to read all three and pick one. It turns out all three were real companies that were massive successes. Massive public companies. And they're trying, they were trying to force us to suss out what type of investor we were going to be. Mm-hmm. So when Peter's saying he's a team investor, that is a category of VC. When you get a bunch of VCs in the room, even on the same, even in the same firm, you'll have a team investor, you'll have a market investor, you'll have different profiles, different lenses that people look through. Totally. So, okay. So can we switch to General Catalyst? We've talked about the firm a couple times through this, yeah. but yeah. I, I don't know if everyone knows it. I mean, it, it is one of the predominant institutions on the East Coast. It's a phenomenal firm. Uh, you guys are involved with tons of great deals. Uh, can you give a little overview of General Catalyst for everyone listening? Yeah, absolutely. So GC is a firm founded in 2000, initially headquartered in Boston, that in the last 20 years has expanded to New York, Palo Alto, San Francisco, $8 billion under management, and is a venture firm that is dedicated to backing incredible companies that want to have an enduring positive impact. And so that's that's the ethos and the core of, of GC. Um, we do everywhere from early stage to later stage investments. And, and, the, and the goal is to be able to meet founders wherever they are in their journey of building and scaling their company. And so that involves seed investments, that involves $100 million investments, and we invest across the spectrum of, of industries. Um, so whether that's healthcare, financial services, consumer. And so, you know, the team is, I mean, I, I couldn't have, you know, been more lucky, you know what I mean, to find a, a group of folks to, to learn from and to work alongside and to be, be partners alongside. So, um, so that's a little bit about GC. You know, we're, inv- we're lucky to be investors in Airbnb and, and Snap and, and Lemonade and, and Stripe and, and companies like Roe and, and a number of others. Um, and again, I think that the common theme and the common goal is to find entrepreneurs that want to build enduring software companies that have a positive impact. Now, is there a way you guys get involved? Firms with a lot of capital will often invest, put more weight on larger investments, so Series B, C, D rounds. Or there's other firms out there that will try to do every dollar into the company at every round because that's the only way to put the money to work. So they'll try to grab it at the A, but not syndicate. Do the whole B, do the whole C. Not Syndicate, for everyone listening, is when you have a bunch of other investors participate in the investment with you. Is there a model that GC uses to manage $8 billion? That's a fairly large sum of capital for a venture firm to be managing. Yeah. You know, we work in in teams and we collaborate across stages. And to be honest, I I wish I could tell you that there was one particular method because I don't think founders, you know, would fit into that recipe and fit into that equation. Um, But what we do do is, I mean, we have a very healthy, you know, set of investing across all these different stages and increasingly all across geographies to meet these incredible founders where they are. So, um, and we like to be collaborative. We like to be collaborative, not only internally where, you know, we all just, you know, there's, there isn't, you know, territorial kind of fiefdoms and and politics and all that jazz, which is easy to to have emerge uh, amongst a partnership. Um, But we also love collaborating with other firms, right? And, and, and sometimes, you know, that takes place in the context of seed. So co-leading a seed investment, you know, mm-hmm. with, a, with another firm and not being, you know what I mean, uh, you know, sharp elbows. Like that's, that's, an, that's a concept, you know, that I think about all the time, which is you can choose to have sharp elbows and be near-term greedy, 
But what that does to your relationships, your reputation, and your long-term returns, I think ultimately, you know, becomes a little bit complicated. Not a long game, right? It's It's not not a long long game game. adventure. And I think the second piece is, you know, it's founders. You know what I mean? Want to and and get to choose who they work with, right? And so, so I think it's very easy to think, oh, like you know, venture investors get to make all the decisions. But it's really at the end of the day, a founder gets to choose you know, what collection of people, what brand, what, you know, what they want to be associated with. And so we, we, we meet, you know, those, those founders and when it makes sense for us to do the entire round or part of the round, you know what I mean? Like we work with them, but I would say, and each of us also has, I think, different styles, right? I, you know, for what it's worth, I love syndicating, you know, and opportunities because I think two heads are oftentimes better than one, right? And it's just, I think, working together with other venture investors that you respect and admire and like to work alongside. One of the things you do is you just get into a rhythm of, of collaborating and co-investing together. And you work on basically making the pie, so to speak, or the opportunity, the overall opportunity size bigger than it would have been on your own, right? That's, that's what constantly goes through my mind. Um, and so that's where, you know, a number of the investments, you know what I mean, I've made have just been alongside other how, do, how does the team get segmented? Are you guys segmented by stage, by industry, by geography? And, and what, what, what uh, sub-segment do you fit into? Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm easy. You know, I'm supporting founders in the earliest part of their journey. You know, so that means, you know, pre-seed through Series A, right? So I okay. want to be the first, you know, the first partner to, to That makes total sense, given so rough draft that. and everything you've done. Exactly. So I love that. Um, and for me, I've got a little bit of a geographic flavor just because, you know, I care tremendously about New York and the East Coast and it's where I grew up. It's, it's where my network and relationships, it's where I walk down the street, bump into people and realize, oh, I should catch up with them. And that leads to an investment. So, so that serendipity um, comes from a certain amount of density and network connectivity. Um, and I also think about just building up more technology ecosystems, right? Because I think you know, to use whether, you know, you want to use San Francisco or another ecosystem. I think every city, you know what I mean, I think should have, you know, as thriving and vibrant a, a technology community because that's, that's the world we're going to inherit, you know what I mean? And it's only a matter of time. And so I've really enjoyed, you know, playing a very small, small, small role and just seeing New York kind of build up and compound in the way that it is now. So, so I've got that, you know, I've got a little bit of that hometown, you know, kind of pride going on. Uh, but to answer your question, I mean, we want to get the right group of folks in front of any founder, you know what I mean, that, that makes sense. So that cuts across, to your point, sectors, states. There's got to be some or, sort of structure within where someone, they know their job description is their, their East Coast growth. Or there, there's got to be some sort of organization. Yes, it's, it's not yeah, chaos within no, the walls no, of DC. Certainly not chaos. No, no, yeah. no. We have we have practices. We have strategy practice groups, and so seed, early stage growth, and endurance. You know, those represent basically all the stage I that see. a company can go through. Um, and, so and then I'm sure the, you have pools of capital allocated to each, and 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 I think more importantly, we also have individual investors that spike and are passionate about and have a point of view around different areas. So uh, late stage consumer. This person has a tremendous amount of, of, of knowledge and expertise, early stage, enterprise, Tel Aviv, you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. but it does end up being, and that's why I say we, we end up working across these groups though, because you may have someone with incredible fintech expertise that typically is doing, you know, more growth stage investments, but they're definitely going to have a point of view on an early stage idea. So that's where we do some remixing, you know what I mean? And that's where a little bit of the alchemy kind of happens Got it. to get the right subgroups together. What has set GC apart from other firms? When you think about what makes the firm special, and everyone has an answer that's different for their firm, mm-hmm. what is GC's unique angle, position, secret sauce? What, what, what is it for you guys? Yeah, boy. You know, I, I have to answer this in the way that I've felt through my, you know, eight years uh, at GC, um, this collection of people is profound. And it's gotten better with time and it, it, it gets better, you know, every, every year. I think it starts there. I, you know, and I, I, I know, you know, as cliche or trivial as that answer may sound, but at the end of the day, capital, 
is a commodity and increasingly so in our industry. It's about the people that you work with, you know, and it's not yeah. as trite as, you know, do I want to have a beer with them? But that's not what I'm talking about. It's like, I'm going to be interfacing and collaborating with this person for 10 years if, I, if I'm a founder, right? It matters a lot to, to pick the, the people. I think the, the, the group of investors and our partnership at GC is just incredible. And I think that part of what brings that together and stitches it together is just this reminder of like what we're in service of. I think there's this incredible service mindset that our partner Ken Chanel, you know, echoes and amplifies and is really, I think, the stitching in, in all of us, which is we're in service to LPs, we're in service to founders. This isn't about, you know, any one of us. This isn't just about returns. It's There's an actual service. I mean, you know, scholarships are actually going to, you know, take place, you know what I mean, at, 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 at really important philanthropic institutions by doing this work. And, and founders are going to live their dreams and have an impact in the communities that matter to them because of this work. And so I think that's the, those are the two. Um, that's, I, I like that language. We think of the venture business as a service business. And when, when you have that mindset, you start treating everyone like customers. Uh, I, I think it gives the firms a chance to thrive. So I really, that language resonates with me personally. Yeah. Um, how do you see GC evolving? Are you guys, I, it's a big ship at this point. Is that, is this the destination? No, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, when I, when I think back, so I joined the team to open our New York office, right? So to so talk about kind of, you know, evolving and evolution, um, Cause I was just, I was, you know, it was super clear, you know, that GC's ambitions, you know, were, were worldwide. Um, and I wanted to be a part of helping and contributing the way that I could, you know, I've got my, I've always had my little metro card, you know, ready to, ready to go. So, um, and you know, it's interesting. I reflect on that moment a lot because I got a lot of conflicting advice from, from mentors and from folks that are like, oh my gosh, if you want to do this for real, you have to go to XYZ city, you know what I mean? Blah, 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 blah. But I was like, mm. No, New York, it, it's, 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 it's definitely um, going to be, if nothing else, personally fulfilling. But now looking back, it's, it's, you know, it's turned into such a powerful ecosystem. So, uh, and so many cities, you know what I mean, are, are, are going to transform and are currently transforming, which I'm excited about. Um, so I would say, I mean, we have, I mean, every year, you know, we run a set of experiments and pilots and do things new. There is no qualms or concerns, you know what I mean, about that, you know, saying, oh, hey, this is what's worked for us in the past and so we have to keep doing it. That's not, that's not the way the organization works. So every year it's iteration, expansion, and just huge, huge, huge ambition. You know, I think even in the last two years, I mean, a lot of what I described to you didn't exist. And then eight years ago, you know, it just, you know, we didn't have these offices, we didn't have this team, we didn't have all these strategies. And so the firm's constantly evolving and I'm, I'm super grateful to played my little part with rough draft and with New York and seed investing, you know, but the firm is, I mean, it's, it's definitely, I think to your point, in order to meet founders as our customers, where they are, we have to diversify and constantly evolve the offering, right? Because the second the offering becomes stale, right? It's just, that's, that's, that's not, that's not going to work. Um, so anyway, constantly, you know, huge ambitions. Now, one interesting, interesting thing about General Catalyst that I think I have right, tell me if I'm incorrect, it's probably the only venture fund that has an Academy Award. Is that correct? You know, boy, that, that strikes me as correct. Um, no, you know, we've got, I, I, it comes back to the people. You know, our partner, you know, David Fialco, you know what I mean, is just a, can you tell the story on that? Because yeah. I think I know the story, but I probably have it wrong. And I think everyone else would like to hear it. Yeah. His, you know, David is one of the rarest people you'll meet. Uh, he's a big part of the, the reason why um, I think many of us chose to, to, to be at GC. Um, and he's been an incredible mentor over the years. Um, you know, I have this memory, you know, basically sitting with him at the Crosby Street Hotel. And he's like, hey, did you read the, you know, the cover of the New York Times? I'm like, not yet. You know, this is like, seven in the morning, you know, which is right. when he's having breakfast at the Crosby. I'm like, I got up, did my thing and came here. I've read the Right. And, and long story short, you know, his work on, on Icarus, the documentary about the, you know, basically the Russian kind of just doping scandal um, uh, around the Olympics. And so that knocked them out of the Olympics, that documentary. 
Yes, exactly. And so anyway, that, that, you know, the, the punchline is, you know, there was a fair amount of time where there was a lot of news and honestly just like impact and outcomes, you know what I mean? Not just an incredible piece of, of, of film, right. Uh, which is just, I mean, incredibly illuminating, but actually there were, you know, kind of, you know, ramifications for basically improving the, you know, the sportsmanship and the conduct. And so anyway, that's, that's the story, you know, and, and you guys did the firm fund it or your partner wrote the check personally. Did, it is David Fialco's special. You know, it is. Got it. So it's his Academy Award, not General Catalyst. But I think you need to have it in the halls of the office because that is a shocking random element. We have had it make appearances at our office, our portfolio companies. And so, oh yeah. Yeah, and it's not just a movie. It's a movie that had historical consequence. People haven't seen Icarus. It's a documentary. I watched it on Netflix. I don't know if it's still on there, but. Yeah. Uh, very fascinating, yeah. worth a watch. Um, now, if I'm not mistaken, you interned at Bad Boy Entertainment earlier in your career. Good Lord, Mark. That sounds like a whole conversation we might need to delve into. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if I'm also not mistaken, for folks who want to follow Peter on Twitter, he is Bad Boy Boyce, and that is his handle. Is there a relationship between the internship and the handle? And we are blushing for our third time, folks. Yeah, geez, Louise, Mark. I got to tell you, I mean, uh, this is like one of my like dinner table party conversations, you know, because okay. I'm, I'm like normally a pretty straightforward, boring, like I like to read and, you know, travel. Yeah, I wouldn't usually put bad boy and physics <laughs> in the same like same conversation. Nope. Most folks don't. No, I did. Color coded bookshelves. Yeah, no, I did. I love hip hop. I love music. Uh, I grew up, um, you know, kind of fascinated by the careers of, of, of folks like Notorious B.I.G. and Biggie and, 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 and the work that, you know, Bad Boy and, and, and Diddy had and all of that I was fascinated by. So it's actually, you know, for what it's worth, I made my handle when I was working there. You know, I, you uh, did. Okay. I had a, I had a, a project related to, to Diddy's Twitter accounts. Um, and lo and behold, you know, I was like, oh, I should probably test things out on my account before I, you know, start playing around with, uh, with any it's a good handle. You can't drop it now, right? No, no. I've had the opportunity to, you know, be branded. People know it's you. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's always, you know, it, it's fun because, you know, I'll get a, an email or something. Someone will say, PS, love your Twitter handle. And it's just kind of it's great. Yeah, and then I have other folks that tell me. Like, it's great. You got to have a little fun. You can't be professional every minute, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Trust me. So All right. I, you've alluded to this a little bit through the conversation. I'm going to let you off the hook on the Twitter handle. Um, you've alluded, you're welcome. You've alluded to this a little bit through the conversation. And I think it's a macro trend that we're, you and I are not the only people seeing. It's the atomization of Silicon Valley. All the innovation was happening there and very little anywhere else until probably about 20 years ago. And it feels like it's materially accelerating now, particularly with COVID, work from home is changing it, where we don't need to be co-located in the same 50 blocks to access capital, access talent, build great companies. You've talked about New York, and then you brought in it to the East Coast. We're hearing a lot of talk about Miami right now. And for those who are listening, I'm a New Yorker, and I'm building the New York ecosystem, but invest nationally. Right. What, what is the trend we're seeing? Do you think it's permanent? What happens to Silicon Valley? Mm-hmm. Where does all this go from your lens? Yeah. Uh, you know, so first off, I, I would say there, there's a book, you know, called The Rainforest uh, that I think is a really great read. And it's basically unpacks fundamental units and properties of ecosystems, of, of, of professional ecosystems. Uh, and I think it does a really great job of distilling the necessary ingredients or like the, the, the ingredients that basically create for a thriving, you know, um, technology ecosystem. Um, and there, there's nothing in that that, that, that that precludes any city from becoming a, a technology ecosystem. There's just, there's, there's nothing. There's no, you know. Um, and in fact, if anything, I, I like, I like I, I've loved this book. Uh, among others, but you know, I think anyone that you know read this, you know what I mean, and was playing a partner industry could basically bring some of those insights and some of those lessons and start re-engineering their environments um, in whatever city they are to to encourage and foster and accelerate. I think it's a the way I think about this question, Mark, because I, I think about it a lot. 
it has to do with it, its timeline. It has to do with time. It's, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, right? San Francisco has a head start. That's the way to think about it. It's not, you know, it, it's literally like, I think it's just an example of just, you know, a different part of the timeline. And every city, I think, is going to get there to some varying degree, should they want to, should the people in those communities want to, right? Um, you, I, we, we came to do this in New York, you know what I mean? Or like, we, we grew up, like, this is what we wanted to, to do. Um, so I'm hoping that we're doing something to, you know, basically accelerate that timeline, right? Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm really encouraged because I think, you know, technology communities and cities, you know, that embrace the, the fact that this is our future are going to be healthier, you know what I mean? They're going to be very productive, you know? It's where people are going to be generating their livelihood, right? And I think we're seeing, you know, the last year has been a forcing function on this, but it's it's been tried and true for, you know, years, many years before that, you know, you can build really successful companies and venture firms in many, many, many different places. And yes, there are certain starting advantages and certain densities that you can take advantage of when you're in one of these ecosystems. But I think we've, we've to your point, we've seen that that can be many places. So I'm I'm excited for more folks to basically raise their hands and say, Hey, we're going to will this into existence. That's what's taking place with Miami right now, right? Like, I love it. Great. Let's will it into existence. Austin, Texas. Let's will it into existence. That's awesome. I love that. Um, I think that, you know, there are, for what it's worth, I think important things to trace back to in terms of thinking about what are some of the elements, though, that, you know, maybe harder influence or maybe kind of harder to engineer or they're going to take longer time. And that's where I think folks, you know, maybe are or are not paying enough attention to. And this is where I go back to university ecosystems, having a dense university ecosystem or being one of the flight paths, so to speak, where great university talent flows, I think is crucial, right? I mean, that was crucial for, uh, you know, putting Boston, you know what I mean, into, into business. I think it's crucial to New York having, you know, great universities like we do here. Um, I think that that's going to be, I think, one of the interesting elements, too, is just, you know, who are the communities and cities that are going to do bold, interesting things to say, hey, oh, my gosh, like, you know, start your career with us. And there's certain lifestyle questions or lifestyle aspects of some of these cities, you know, Miami. People have families where they have families, right? They want to to have a career where their family is. Exactly. You know, family, temperature you know, real estate prices, all that jazz, but it'll just be interesting to see. I think that's one of the ones that I'm, I'm excited about too. Cause I think there's like this awesome opportunity for like an open call to be like the router, you know what I mean? Like route into our city, you know, to get your career jump started. Um, I think companies can play that role. I think venture firms can play that role. Um, but it'll be exciting to see. That's amazing. I, I, I believe it's a global phenomenon at this point. I'm very encouraged to see um, the whole you know, mankind transforming for sure by having just, better, better innovation cycles. Absolutely, I was just more distributed. In, in, I was just down in in Colombia. You know, just uh, just a few weeks ago. I mean, the innovation that's taking place in Bogota and Medellin. I mean, it, it, companies like Rappi, you know, that are scaling and growing, and they're going to create you know a, a wave of of entrepreneurs that want to go and start their own companies because they all learned at one place. And so, I love it. I love it. And on that note, I'd like to flip it a little bit and ask you a question to help everyone listening learn. What is the most important advice you can give to an entrepreneur at this point? Now, you haven't been in the entrepreneurial hot seat, but you've supported a lot of folks, seen a lot of stuff, probably learned a lot through osmosis, through the things your partners are experiencing. Mm-hmm. If you could give some nuggets of advice that maybe people haven't already heard, what would you offer? Yeah. You know, and I'm glad you you kind of you know set the context that way because um, I'll I'll perpetually be learning on this front. Um, there are, and we don't need to talk about the you know the failed startups that I was a part of in college. You know, that's neither here nor there. Um, but I have, um, a lo- I have a longer list than you, my friend. Yeah, I'm sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think um, so. One, and this is you know this is I think one of Fortune's formulas for sure, which is assemble the best group of people around you that's possible. That's that's, I, that is fortune's formula, you know, and I, you could be starting a nonprofit, a for-profit, a startup, a, you know, a student group or whatever, but just you have to assemble incredible people around you. 
that are going to compliment you. And just that, that is, I mean, people are the fundamental units of what we're trying to do in this industry. I think it's easy to forget that. It's easy to lose sight of that. But that's when I've seen success compound over time, when I've seen success accumulate over time, it starts with that. Uh, and that's why, you know, I believe in trying to get the people right, you know, at, at, at all costs. I'll take all the other risks, you know what I mean? But just great people. So that's, um, and, and I think, you know, tactically that just, just, just be the, the thoughtful and the intentionality and almost just like a, just a, I mean, just in a, a, like a, a relentless precision in hiring, you know what I mean? Like, that's just, I think, you know, key. There's something I suggest to entrepreneurs on that note, something I call the Superman analysis. I have them write down all of the skills, capabilities they need when they're starting the company to make the company work. I need someone who can sell, some new tech, product, make the whole list. Check the boxes that they have and relentlessly, to use your word, hire to fill the rest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, totally. So it that's help, I like, find it helps people focus. Yeah, I think, you know, I would focus on that. That's, I think, the... Everything else, you know, I mean, the, you know, if, if I'm ever going to share, share a second piece of advice for entrepreneurs, yeah, um, please. it has to do with, you know, this, this piece around learning, sources of learning. I, I, I've got to tell you, uh, the, the learning from founders that are two stages ahead of you is one of the most tried and true, persistent sources of cheat codes and insights that I've ever seen for any entrepreneur. If you're seed stage, have three friends that have series B companies that you're constantly in dialogue with learning from because they've made in recent memory some of the choices that you're going to make and they'll tell you some of the potholes and some of the great decisions they made. So that's and, and, and that I can go down that list, but just the, the sources of learning and the constant. I mean, this, I use that expression learning machine all the time. It's just that is crucial. Right. And I think the moment we decide that we have all the answers or we don't need to learn anymore, that's the that's the stagnation, you know, formula. That's the end. So yeah. So those are the two things I, I think I, I think about the most core and critical. Fantastic. Peter, you're the real deal. Thank you for taking the time. This is fantastic. And there's a lot of great insights for folks here. Um and look forward to working with you and seeing you around town once Absolutely. this pandemic is over. You know it. Mark, thanks so much for having me and sharing the time. Thank you. Take care. I'm very grateful to Peter for taking the time to share his experiences with us. I think his perspective is particularly relevant for student entrepreneurs and aspiring VCs. If you like what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. To hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search for innovation with Mark Peter Davis.